Uh, with that, I want to transition into our time in God's Word as we continue our worship this morning. Uh, we'll do that in, in and around the Scriptures. And if you would, if you haven't yet, you can open up your Bible to 1 John chapter 4. As you know, we, we did our reading this morning from, from that passage, and we'll, we'll be there uh, as we continue our worship in the Word. Do you agree or disagree with this statement? Love is an abstract concept that comes and goes, whether you like it or not. It's whatever legislation or whatever philosophies people have put out about it, it exists without words or without philosophy or without discussion. And that seems a little abstract. Is love some abstract concept that comes and goes whether we like it or not? Does it exist without philosophy or without discussion? Is that true of love? No, I don't think it is. If you're following, this quote portrays love as some kind of independent force in the universe. Love is like a butterfly, I suppose, fluttering around, and we're, we're running around with nets trying to catch it, right? Something like that. This is a very secular perspective on love. We shouldn't be surprised. I'll have you know that the quote is John Lennon. Picking on John Lennon a little bit this morning. The Bible never portrays love as an abstract concept that comes and goes, whether we like it or not. Not the way the Bible portrays love. The Bible, nor does the Bible teach us that love exists without philosophy or without discussion. Those things are not true of love. The Bible presents love as a very concrete concept, a very concrete concept. In fact, we have our great chapter on love in the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul writes, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7, love is patient and kind. You're familiar with this, right? Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoings, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. Love endures all things. And then, of course, he says, love never fails. Or the ESV, I think, says, love never ends. Love never ends. And so love has feet. It's an action. We, we like to say, I know it's cliche, but love is a verb to get at that point. And lest we entertain the notion that love exists without philosophy or without discussion, we're immediately confronted with a truth that strikes at the heart of philosophy and something that men have discussed, men and women, people have discussed for ages. And that truth is bound up in three words, three simple words, God is love. God is love. Love is not something that comes and goes whether we like it or not. Love is eternal because God is eternal. Love is like that hum on a radio that's always kind of there lurking behind the music and it, it presents itself when we turn the dial and there, there it is. It's always there. We might not hear it, but, but love is always there, just like that hum on the radio. 
is always there behind the music. And it's always there, it's always here, because God is here. Jesus speaks to the Father in John chapter 17. He speaks to the Father of, my glory that you have given me, he says, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. You loved me before the foundation of the world. Before God spoke the creation, love was there. Love always existed because God always existed. And God is a trinity. He's in relationship with himself. And so love is always, love, love always existed, as we'll see, and will always exist. We know as great as that expression of love was in the trinity, that the worth of God demanded a greater expression of that love. It had to be expressed in a bigger, more profound way. It had to be manifested, revealed. And this expression of love was achieved when God sent his son into the world which is what we celebrate at Christmas. The manifestation of God's love in a child. And so it's this expression of love that we have the opportunity to celebrate at Christmas as I've entitled this message, Love Displayed, Love Displayed. Now if you've been with us over the last couple weeks, you know we have this tradition here at Rosedale Bible Church of, of lighting these candles it's not just our tradition, it's a tradition that's around, but in lighting these candles, and we've attached a, a different virtue to each one of these candles. Five virtues in total, we'll see the last one, the Christ candle tonight. The first candle, we talked about this virtue of hope, or the idea of hope. There we learned that Jesus came as a fulfillment of biblical prophecy, in that message, we, we trace the entire uh, story of redemption, the plan of redemption from Genesis 3 to Revelation chapter 20, 21, and we saw that with the birth of Jesus, hope is fulfilled. The second candle, we looked at the virtue of peace. There we learned that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. We studied Micah 5.2, and we saw that Jesus came. He came and he, he promised peace, peace to Israel and to all the nations, and so this, the birth of Jesus reminds us of peace promised. Last week, we looked at the virtue of joy with the third candle. We talked about the shepherds who were there on the evening when the angels came and declared that Jesus was born. We saw there, we, we learned that we are to rejoice this Christmas season because the gospel message, the message of God, the message of Christmas came to common folk, common people like us, shepherds, and the message came, and it was clear. They could understand that message, and it was a convincing message. They understood the message. They praised God. They were convinced that all of these things actually happened. Jesus was born and was in a manger. This, this week, as I've said, we'll pick up the fourth virtue, and that is the virtue of love. That is our theme this morning. And not just any love, but love displayed. And so I'd like to show you this morning, how the love of God is displayed in four different directions. This Christmas Eve, we'll see God's love displayed in four directions. I hope you have your Bible open to 1 John chapter 4. In verse 7 there is where uh, we'll begin. Verse 7 begins with a command. Let us love, beloved, let us love one another. 
we have a command. And John immediately supports this command with or saying, for love is from God. We're commanded to love one another, and he supports the claim, the command, with the saying, for love is from God. The key to making sense of this passage is understanding how these two ideas connect to one another. What is the relationship between these two statements, the command to love and that God, that love comes from God? Basically, what John will argue in this passage is that love is so rooted in God that all those who know God will be, they must be affected by that love. It must cause them to love others. That's really what this passage is all about. So the first direction of God's love, or the first direction God's love is displayed, is the eternal direction of love, the eternal direction of love. And it's the eternal direction of love that directs us towards one another. John has a very high view of God. In fact, he probably has the loftiest view of God, the loftiest view of the love of God in all of the Bible. John has the reputation of being you might have heard it, the apostle of love. For John, love is a non-negotiable. It's a non-negotiable. John Calvin said, he captured the point, quote, if anyone separates Christian faith from love, it is as if he were trying to take away heat from the sun. They cannot be separated. The, ap- the apostle John is teaching us, of course, that doctrine isn't enough. What we believe isn't enough. To speak about belief is to get us somewhere, but it's not to get us far enough. We need to go further than just believing something. We have to travel the eternal direction from God to others. From God and to others. Proof of faith is more than belief. It is an action. All of this is here in this passage. We have to have love for one another. Since all True love comes from God. It stands to reason that, as John says, whoever loves, he continues in verse 7, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Of course, John here is speaking of love in the truest sense. Love in the truest sense. Not just any love, but, as we know, agape love, that Greek word used for this kind of love, agape love. It's, It's more than an emotional kind of love more than a mere physical kind of love. It's more than the love that we have for our friends. It's more than that. It's a, it's a sacrificial kind of love. As we say, it's, it's a love that doesn't seek its own. It seeks the benefit of, the, of another person. That's what agape love is. Sacrificial is the, the key word there when we talk about agape love. It's sacrificially caring for one another. This kind of love, of course, isn't reserved for the attractive. It's not reserved for the lovable. This kind of love is is to be doled out to everyone, even those we've deemed unattractive and unlovable. Agape love demands that. If love for one another is the proof, then, that we know God, then to not love is proof that we don't know God. Look at verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. What a shocking outcome. So simple, yet it's so profound. The failure to love is more than an ethical failure. 
Certainly it is an ethical failure to not love one another, but it's actually, John is saying, it's a salvific failure. As I like to say, saving grace is sanctifying grace. The the grace that saves also sanctifies. It changes us. That's the idea of sanctifying grace. It cleanses us. It has a a result in our lives that makes us different. Saving grace is sanctifying grace. Of course, we're not saved by our works, but we certainly are saved for good works. The Bible makes that point all over the place. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for, Paul says, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, love is like forgiveness. It is a work we must walk in. To not love is to prove that we don't understand the love of God. In the same way that if we can't forgive one another, we don't understand the forgiveness of God. Jesus makes that point in Matthew chapter 6. Lovelessness is then godlessness. It is the proof that we have no grasp of who God is. And why is this true? Why is this true? Why is it true that anyone who does not love does not know God? We'll look down at verse 8. There's the reason. Because God is love. Because God is love. It's true because of what I'm calling the eternal direction of love. Because love is rooted in who God is. God is love in his inmost or his innermost being. There are four statements in the New Testament that capture God in this kind of way, in such succinct terms. You're familiar with them. John 4:24 says, "God is spirit. God is spirit." 1 John 1, 5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light, God is spirit, God is light. You probably like Hebrews 12, 29, you know that one. God is a consuming fire. God is spirit, God is light, God is a consuming fire, and 1 John 4, 8 says, God is love. These kind of four areas in the New Testament where God is captured in such succinct terms. John Stott says of God as love, he says, quote, this is the most comprehensive and sublime of all biblical affirmations about God's being. I'm not sure if that's true, but I like it. I like the idea. To say that God is love isn't to say or doesn't mean that love is only one of God's characteristics or one of his attributes. That's not what this means. It's not one of his many activities. It doesn't merely mean that he's capable of love. And yet he dispenses it. He dispenses love when he pleases. That's not exactly what this is saying. That's not not exactly what it means to say God is love. To say that God is love is to say something about the eternal substance and nature of God. Again, it's to say something about who he is in his innermost being. It's to say that all of his actions are actions of love. Every action that God takes is covered, blanketed in love. This means when God judges, 
he judges in love. When God vindicates, he vindicates in love. When God commands, his command is in love. When God disciplines, even his discipline is covered in his love. It has to be because it's his nature, it's who he is. He can't, he can't act, he can't do anything outside of love. Of course, there's no more universal language than love. I was teasing John Lennon a little bit when we started. Lennon stressed the importance of love. All we need is love. Love is all we need. You know that? And yet we have to say more. I appreciate those words. I'm not going to be too hard on anybody that promotes the virtue of love. That is a good thing. But to say all we need is love and love is all we need isn't to stay enough. We have to say more about love. Again, we can appreciate any song that champions the virtue of love, but the world can only idolize love itself. That's all the world can do. The world makes an idol of love and bows down to love itself. The world worships the virtue, you might say. The apostle doesn't say love is God. The Bible never says that. It doesn't say love is God. It says God is love. And there's a difference. As Christians, we don't worship the virtue of God. As Christians, we worship the God of the virtue it is God that defines love. Love does not define him. And yet, love alone will not drive us to God. We must be driven to love by God. So as John unfolds God's love for us here in this text, we begin with the, the eternal direction of love. Love is inextricably rooted in God like ingredients that are folded into those cookies that you made this week, you can't ever remove those ingredients. They're folded into that, that, that batter. So it is that God's love is so folded into this world that it can't be removed. It's a part of the fabric of existence because God is love. Here's a second direction of God's love in verses 9 through 10. Here we have what we'll call the historical direction of love. The historical direction of love. Look at verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world. Why? So that we might live through him, verse 9 says. John says, the love of God was made manifest that is, the love of God was revealed. That's what that means there. It was made manifest. It was revealed. It's fair to say that the love of God has been manifest, has been revealed throughout history. I spoke of this earlier about God's love in the heavens. Although we're not privy to it, we can't see it. But God's love has always been manifested in the heavens. If we had a window into heaven, we would always see the love of God. It's always there, forever. God's love was made manifest when he set his heart to love the nation of Israel. Maybe you remember that from Deuteronomy chapter 10. God actually says that they were unlovable. He says, you are an unlovable people, but I set my heart to love you. God made a decision. He made a choice 
to love an unlovable people. And so God's love was manifest, was revealed to the nation of Israel. Generally, God's love is manifest to anyone who would turn to him and love him. Proverbs 8, 17 says, I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. It's kind of like the New Testament, draw near to him and he'll draw near to you. It's kind of an Old Testament version of it. The love of God wasn't merely manifest to Israel, but it was revealed to anyone who might turn to him and diligently seek him. John is saying something a little bit different here, though. He says, in this the love of God was made manifest, and then he says where? He says, among us. It was made manifest among us. The ESV translation is good here. Some translations have, it was made manifest in us. I like the idea of among us because I think that gets at what John is getting at with the corporate nature of the manifestation of God's, of God's love. It is more corporate than personal. The idea is similar to John's word in his gospel when he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God's love was manifest among us, corporately. Although it's true that the love of God is revealed in us, that is true. John is stressing that the love of God is revealed among us corporately. That is, God did not manifest his love in some corner of the world. He did it corporately. He did it in public for people to see. It was an announcement, you might say. He proclaimed it to the world. So where did God manifest his love? He manifested among us out in the world. And how did God manifest his love? That God, it says in verse 9, sent his only son into the world. This is the way in which God revealed his love. He sent his son into the world, which is what we celebrate at Christmas. We're celebrating the love of God manifested, the love of God revealed. So there it is. The coming of Christ is the concrete, historical revelation of God's love. The coming of Christ is therefore the historical direction of love. It's hard to imagine a greater act of love than the giving of God's own son. What could be greater? What could be more significant than that? God sent his only son, it says, I like the NIV a little bit better on this verse. God sent his one and only son. His one and only son. I like that because it, it strikes at the, the exclusivity and the uniqueness of God's son. It was his exclusive son and it was his unique son. There is no other son like him. It was his only son, his unique son. Jesus being God himself is the son, therefore, in an absolute, a complete sense Stott says, no greater gift is conceivable because no greater gift was possible. There's nothing greater that God could have done than send his son to the world. There's no greater expression of love than to offer up your son. This is the highest gift. It is, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9.15, an inexpressible gift. An inexpressible gift. There are not words that we might offer that could explain the kind of gift this is. Christian hymn declares, 
You who are God beyond all praising, all for love's sake became a man. Stooping so low, but sinners raising heavenwards by your eternal plan. You who are God's beyond, you who are God beyond all praising, all for love's sake became a man. We've already spoken a little bit about worldly love. Use that as kind of a foil for the love of God, as Lenin declared. The world not only idolizes love, but it, but it practices favoritism. The world loves those who accept its values and accepts its worldview. The world loves to talk about love. Go to a college campus and, and speak about your worldview. See if they love you. Their love will only go so far. The love of God, you see, is entirely different. It's entirely different than that. God loves sinners who are unworthy of his love. In fact, he loves those who are subject to his wrath. He loves those who have a different opinion. He loves those who hate him. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do, he cried out. God gave us the inexpressible gift of his son, not because we were lovable, but because God is love, because it's rooted in who he is. And the greatness of his love is seen in the costliness of his sacrifice for the undeserving. Paul makes that point in Romans chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. Paul says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. You might take a bullet for a, a good person. You might do something, some sacrificial act for a person that was good to you, was nice. But would you do it for your enemy? Paul says, but God shows his love for us that in that while we were still sinners, what does he say? Christ died for us. So John tells us where God's love was manifest. It was manifest among us. He tells us how God's love was manifest in the gift of his son. And then he tells us why. Why God's love was manifest. So that, he says, that's your purpose clause. So that, this answers the question why. Why did God send his son? Tell us, John. So that we might live through him. So that we might live through him. The love of God manifests in the birth of Jesus means that we live even if we die. We live even if we die. For God so loved the world. In what way? That he gave his only son, his unique son, for what purpose? That whoever believes in him might not perish, but have eternal life. This is the gospel. This is the message of the church. This is why we're here. Outside of love, you see, God would just be a creator. That's all God would be. The deists had that idea. God was like some watch or a clock that was set in motion and just step away and it just ticks away. God is not merely a creator. The love of God demands so much more. It, it means that view, we have to reject that view. 
Because God interacts with the world. He steps into the world. He interacts with the clock. He does something for the world. The love of God prevents such a view. The fact that God is love means that God couldn't let this world just tick away. He couldn't do that. God had to engage this world, and he did so through his son, through himself. And this means that this world will not have the final word. This world will not have the final word. If this world were to have the final word, well, then we would die. We would perish. Death would be victorious. But death is not victorious. That's what he's saying. He's saying we live. We have life. John tells us that God sent his son so that we might live. That we might live. And the life that John speaks of isn't mere existence. Barclay says, quote, there's a world of difference between existence and life. All men have existence, but not all men have life. Something different that John is talking about. Something different that Jesus teaches us about. Jesus said if we drink from the water that he gives us, we will never be thirsty again. We will never be thirsty again for the water that I will give you will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That's the truth, friends. That's real. It might not feel like it, but it is. You have to fight for it every day. John 10, 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Abundantly, which is to say an abundance of abundance. Like underline the word is what Jesus is saying there. It's not about mere existence. It's about finding your path through all the garbage and the pain and the heartache and the doubt. This is the life that God offers you. Such abundance certainly points to length of living in eternity. Certainly points to that. But it also points to a depth of living now. A depth of living now. This is really the central application from this passage. The love of God spans the length of eternity and the depth of our personal relationships. It's a profound reality. We experience abundant life as we live out the love of God that has been poured out into our hearts. This is the teaching of this text. And how is this possible? How is all of this possible? Look at verse 10. John says, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The propitiation for our sins. John is saying more here about God's, the revelation of God's love for us. He moves from the birth of Jesus to the death of Jesus, from the incarnation to the atonement. He's telling us the whole story is what he's doing. God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. There's a fancy word, propitiation. We don't use it very often. We don't use it every day. It simply means that Christ satisfied God's righteous anger against sin and thus turned away his wrath from us. That's what it means. 
The torrent of God's wrath was barreling forward towards us. And the death of Jesus became a mighty bulwark for us, shielding us from experiencing what we deserve. That's what propitiation means. And this is all of, as I've kind of coined it, the historical direction of love. The historical direction of love. The Son of God taking on flesh, being born in the likeness of men, raised in this world, suffering the trials and temptations of this life, yet without sin, calling for his people to repent of their sins, to turn to God, being falsely accused of blasphemy, being rejected in his hometown, having nowhere to lay his head, being tried in a kangaroo court, being spit on, having his beard torn out, being flogged, one lashing from death, having a crown of thorns pressed into his forehead, carrying a heavy cross, having his hands and feet held down as sinful men position nails to be driven through his hands and his feet, hoisted up naked for all to see, gasping for breath, parched for drink, crying out to his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yielding up his spirit. And for what purpose? Why? That Jesus, that he might be the propitiation for our, sin, for our sins. The son of God endured all of that for us. And that's just the physical side. That's just what we could see. What was happening behind the veil, you might say? In some other world, what was going on? Jesus was drinking down the cup of God's wrath fully and wholly. God's arrows of judgment were, were coming against him, piercing him. The, the torrent of God's wrath was drowning in him, or he was drowning in it. 2 Corinthians 5.21 for our sake, he made him sin. He made him sin. Who knew no sin? So that we might become the righteousness of God. Amen? He made him sin. He was made to be sin so that we might be made righteous. I don't know of a bigger truth than that. That's the gospel. And that righteousness is yours, not by works, simply by believing, by taking that step of faith and trusting yourself to God. You can be right with God in this moment today, right here. You can put on the righteousness of God, all his holiness, all his virtue. You can carry that just simply by belief. And it's no burden. John says in the same book, he says, God's commands are not burdensome. They bring us joy to love one another, to care for each other, to live for him. These are spiritual realities too big for us. 
And so we stand before God cleansed. As Paul says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And there's more. The righteousness that we become has a present effect, which is getting at kind of the main, main application of this text, and it's the third direction of love. To review, eternally, love is rooted in God's eternal nature. That's the eternal direction of love. Historically, Jesus, God sent his son Jesus to die. That is the historical direction of love. And all of this leads us to the present direction of love, the present direction of, of love. Look at verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also, we also ought, he says, to love one another. We also ought to love one another. John is saying something like, you can't look down into the manger or look up at the cross, up at the cross, and walk away unchanged. You can't do that. If you've done that, then you, you haven't rightly looked into the manger or up at the cross. It's going to have an effect in your life. It's going to change you. It's necessary. It has to. Otherwise, you prove that you don't understand those realities. Our love must resemble his love. We also, you might even put in there parentheses, like God, John, John is saying, we also, like God, ought to love one another. Jesus illustrates this point in Matthew chapter 18. You remember the parable of the unforgiving servant? You remember that parable? Matthew chapter 18? Jesus tells a story about a servant who was forgiven a large debt. It was a, it was a debt he could never repay. Billions of dollars. The servant fell on his knees before the king and he pleaded. He pleaded for forgiveness. Matthew 18, 27 says, out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But in an interesting turn of events, the forgiven servant refused to forgive his fellow servant. It, it didn't have an effect on his life. And it was, a, it, was a, it was a very much, it was a lesser debt that he wasn't willing to forgive in the story. The forgiven servant failed to share the mercy he had received from his brother. Now, when the other servants saw this, they reported back to the king, the master, what had happened. Jesus tells us what happens. Quote, Then his master summoned the, un, the forgiven servant, and he said to him, You wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? There's the key. That's the crux of the issue. The forgiven servant ought to have forgiven his fellow servant because he was forgiven by the king. And our experience with the love of God, the fact that we've experienced God's love, ought to result in love toward one another, to borrow Jesus' words, to change them a little bit. And should not you love your fellow servant as I loved you? What, is, what exactly does John intend for love to look like? What does it look like to love each other? It's not in this text. He doesn't flesh it out for us. But if you have your Bible open, you can glance over at chapter 3, 
verses 16 through 18, we get a clue from John what he means when he talks about love. Verse 16, 316 says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Very similar ideas. What does that look like? Look at verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So love is very tangible in John's mind. It can be summed up in this. If, if somebody has a need and you don't fulfill it, you don't help them tangibly with, tang, tangibly with that need, well, then you, you haven't loved them. Love has a, is an action we take. It has an e- external reality. There's an external sense to that love, that we actually do something for each other. We don't just say we love each other, but we actually live it out with our goods, with our possessions, with our money. That's how we love one another. It has an external, a tangible nature to it. But we know that love is also internal as well. We read 1 Corinthians chapter 13 earlier when we started. And so there's a sense in which love is, can be eternalized, internalized as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Love is external and it's internal. 1 Peter 4, 8 gives us another reality about love. Think about what love looks like, what love is. Peter says, 1 Peter 1, 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. There's a sense in which love has a, a kind of purifying effect. It, it purifies us. It covers our sins. There's one last direction of love. It's found in verse 12. We saw the eternal direction of love in verses 7 and 8, the historical direction of love in verses 9, 10, and 11. Verse 11, the present direction of love. And finally, we come to the final direction of love. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love, John says, is perfected in us. His love is perfected in us. John begins to make this point by reminding us that no one has ever seen God. It's an obvious point to make. But it is important to the logic of this text. God is a spirit. God is a spirit and is therefore invisible. However, this doesn't mean that God isn't a personal being. God is a personal being. He's very personal. It just means means he remains unseen. And when I say he's personal, I mean he has characteristics. He takes action like an individual. He does things. He's not a mere force. He takes action. He's not an energy Listen to Numbers 23, 19. God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? While God might not be a man, he might be invisible, he does take specific action to interact with his people. He does things. 
While there's a sense in which God is intangible, he is very tangible in other ways. The most tangible expression, of course, is what happened in Bethlehem. The fact that God sent his one and only son, his unique son, into the world. God becomes tangible. The invisible God becomes tangible. The God who is spirit by nature took upon himself a second nature, the nature of a man. As Mary and Joseph held that baby, they held in one moment, the same time, an intangible tangible, a being that was all God and a being that was all man in that very moment, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And so what does the invisibility of God, the fact that he's unseen, what does that have to do with this? What does it have to do with love? Well, look at verse 12 again. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Here's the point. When we love, we actualize God's invisible presence in the world. We make him seen. We put him on display. We make what's invisible visible. We make the intangible tangible. Robert Yarbrough, one commentator, he explains it this way. God's invisibility then is not only a reason to exalt and venerate him in his heavenly loftiness, it is at the same time an implicit mandate for God's people to render his presence concrete by their response to him. We render the invisible presence of God concrete as we love each other. We make him visible in the world. John is telling us that God is accessible through us when we love. Notice he says, if we love one another, God abides in us. God abides in us. God dwells in us. He remains in us. He resides in us. He lives in us. God is here among us when we love. That's what he means by saying he abides with us. And he says more. He says God's love is perfected in us. He's not only in our midst, but his love is perfected in us. That's that Greek word teleos, to be complete, to be perfected, to bring something to its intended end. That's what that means there. He's not saying that we're made perfect when we love. That's not what he's saying. John is saying that the pristine love of God comes to its fullest earthly expression when we love one another. That's what he's saying. We reveal, we show, we make visible the invisible God's love when we care for each other, when we love one another. Can you see all that's at stake? The birth of Jesus, the love of God made manifest. Can you see what immeasurable gift Jesus was and what immeasurable opportunity he has given us through Jesus? Verse 12 just has 22 simple words, 26 in the Greek. Yet what lofty realities are found in this? The Apostle John will take a backseat to no one in advancing the loftiest view of God in the Bible. Direct proportion to God's transcendence is the mandate that we incarnate God's character with love 
for one another. So this Christmas gives us an opportunity to see God's love displayed in four different directions as I've presented this. When we look toward the eternal direction of love, we see that God's love was and always will be. Love is bound up in the very nature of God. God is love. When we look toward the historical direction of love, we see the baby Jesus laying in a manger. Not only that, we see the life of Jesus offered up as a propitiation for our sins. When we look toward the present direction of love, we see that the birth of Jesus has implications for our life. It means something for us. As Christians, we ought to love in the way that God loved us. We are to give ourselves up for one another. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 20, 26, and 28. Whoever would be great among you must be a servant, and whoever would be first must be a slave. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we have the eternal direction, the historical direction, the present direction, and then the final direction of love. We see that our actions of love actualize the love of God. We see that we make the invisible nature of God visible in the world. This is what John has for us this Christmas season, this Christmas Eve. On the night that Jesus was born, I'm not sure if Mary and Joseph felt loved. I don't know if they felt loved by God. I'm not sure what their birth plan was, but I suspect it didn't involve delivering a baby outdoors. Nor do I suspect that they thought the only amenity for the child would be a feeding trough. I don't know if this experience made them feel abandoned by God. They were people like us. I'm sure they expected love to feel warm and comforting and reassuring. Whatever they thought about what God was doing that night when Jesus was born, God was manifesting, God was revealing his love in the most unthinkable way. God was stepping down into this world in, in the most amazing way, offering his son to rescue us from our sin and to rescue us from death. Betsy Howard writes, quote, when we feel pain, sorrow, bewilderment, helplessness, we haven't been forgotten by God. God's love for you is not based on your feelings or your circumstances. It's based on his unchanging character, the eternal direction of love, which is always good. The evidence of that love is the gift of his beloved son. The baby Mary cradled in her arms. It's my prayer that the love of God displayed in these four directions might lead us both to Christ and to each other this Christmas season. And also course in the days ahead. Amen.